This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Well, that's when I was looking to the left, looking at the clouds, planning my route towards the San Francisco Bay when I saw the other glider cross my path in front of me. And then it was so close, all I could do was to push the stick forward to try and dive underneath it. And I thought initially I had succeeded, and then there was a split second later as a bang. And after that, the first thing I remember is being in an inverted dive, descending rapidly. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. And today we have an unusual episode in that we have two pilots that were involved in a mid-air collision flying gliders in California. Our first guest is Paul Lowenstein. Paul actually started flying gliders in England at age 14, and he moved over to the States where he continued his glider flying and also got a powered flight rating. He's got about 1,600 hours flying gliders and a couple hundred hours in powered flight. Larry Souter has been in and out of flying like many people, started in college, stopped to raise a family, got back into flying, had to stop for business, and he's back into flying. He's got almost 2,000 hours flying gliders, and he is a glider-rated CFI. Both of them are members of the Northern California Soaring Association, and today they're going to share a dramatic event soaring over California where they hit each other and both bailed out successfully. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us on the There I Was podcast. Thank you for having us here. I'm very glad to be here. So, Paul, could you please start out and share with us what kind of gliders were you flying? What kind of day was it? Just kind of set the scene for us as you move into the, uh, the event. Well, it was a very good day for November in uh, with thermals, um, with the cloud base, about 6,000 feet or so. And I took off around about lunchtime and had a struggle climbing at first and then set off towards Mount Diablo, where there was a lot of cumulus around, which marked the top of thermals upcurrent. And there's so much lift around, you really didn't need to circle. So I was heading northwest, looking more to the left than to any other direction because I was planning to head towards the San Francisco Bay as far as the Class Bravo would allow me. So, Paul, you were flying an ASW-20C glider, and you were operating out of Byron Airport. Were you towed airborne, or how, how did you get airborne, actually? We use ever towing, towed behind an aircraft. Okay. Uh, what kind of aircraft uh, towed you airborne? So this is a Pawnee towed us up. Okay, a, a Pawnee is towing you airborne on what you're expecting to be a really nice uh, soaring day. 
and many of us don't have a lot of glider time. So this happened about a year ago. You were on the ground looking at the conditions and you thought there'd be nice for soaring. What, what made you think that? Give us, a, give us a clue of the things you were looking at. Well, we start by looking at the forecast, which nowadays is quite detailed. We can look at maps indicating how much lift and how high it's going to go as a function of time of day and position. So um, that was already a, got us out to the airfield. And then since it was forecast to have cumulus, we could actually look and see the cumulus forming and judge when it was the right time to take off. So I think you mentioned to me you were thermal soaring, not ridge soaring. Could you explain the difference in those? Uh, well, ridge soaring, you're flying along a ridge with air blowing up the hillside. And it, it typically, you're not, you're not normally very far above the ground in ridge soaring. In thermal soaring, you're looking for upcurrents caused by solar heating. And typically, you, um, when you find an upcurrent, you circle in it to climb, and then you set off and find the next one and circle in it. But this day, some of the lift was so close together, a lot of the time you didn't need to circle at all. Oh, that that's, sounds like an ideal day for glider pilots because you've got this uh, pretty thick cumulus layer everywhere, and underneath those cumulus clouds are lift, where it's pulling the air airborne, right? And you just you just can ride that from sort of one elevator to the other, if you will, right? Yes, and it tends to be better over hills and mountains than it is over flat ground, but not always. But this day, it definitely was better over the hilly areas and over the Central Valley. Okay, and so you looked at the forecast, you look at the conditions, and you're thinking this is going to be a beautiful day for soaring, uh, probably relatively cool temperatures in the fall uh, time frame about a year ago. And Pawnee pulls you airborne. I'm sure that Pawnee's got a lot of power. So that's probably nice. And about what altitude do they do you release from the tow plane? Typically about 3,000 feet flying from Byron. Okay. And so you release from the tow plane and you set yourself into the glide and pick it up from there if you would. Well, I set off to what I thought was the nearest good cumulus and struggled and climbed slowly. And I had quite a lot of struggling climbing slowly for... Oh, 20 minutes or so and got fairly low near Livermore and then eventually got good lift, climbed up and then set off towards Mount Diablo. Okay, great. And you were heading towards Mount Diablo and then what happened next? Well, that's when I was looking to the left, looking at the clouds, planning my route towards uh, the San Francisco Bay when I saw the other glider cross my path in front of me. And then it was so close, I all I could do was to push a stick forward to try and dive underneath it. And I thought initially I had succeeded, and then there was a, a split second later, there was a bang. And uh, after that, the first thing I remember is being in an inverted dive, hmm. descending rapidly. I don't remember the transition to the dive at all. And I, it was one of the things I um, noted very early on that I had no recollection of that even immediately after the incident. But you knew for sure that you had hit another airplane, and you knew it was another glider. You, you had yes, just a momentary glance of it, but you knew it was another glider. I knew it was another glider, yes. Okay, and you rolled inverted. Now, you're over relatively high terrain in there. I'm just following along on foreflight here, and it looks like the terrain is up around, what, 1,500 feet or so. And you were about what altitude were you when the collision happened? About 5,300. Okay. Thankfully, you were pretty high then, so you had good. 
then then what happened? So you rolled inverted. Were you out of control? Did you attempt to roll back to controlled flight, or what did you go through then? I didn't have time to even think about flying it. The first thing I did was to reach for the red levers on the canopy to jettison it. And that's how we get the canopy. Gliders have canopy jettison levers. So even though it may hinge forward on the ground, in, when we need to get out in a hurry, we can detach it completely. Okay, so you ejected the canopy and then you were still inverted at that point. Did you just fall out of the glider? Did you, I'm sure you had to unsnap yourself. So as soon as I undid the straps, I, I was out. I, I realized that was what would happen. That was been one of my biggest fears, thinking through bailing out of a glider is getting out of the cockpit. But since I was upside down, that was easy. So as soon as you unstrapped your, your seatbelt and your shoulder harnesses, you just fell out of the airplane? Yes, it's just one lever, disconnects everything, and I'm out. And then from there, did you just immediately pull your, your D-ring or your ripcord, or how did it go from there? I moved, I hope, reasonably calmly towards the ripcord. It don't waste a significant amount, um, and then pull the ripcord at both hands. I can't remember whether I looked or not, but I certainly knew I was meant to look, so if I hadn't found it, I'm sure I would have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And you floated down, I think, uh, into some trees, or how did your descent go? Well, I think I was about a thousand feet when I um, once the parachute opened, and I was drifting towards trees. I had just about enough time to find the uh, lines to steer it with, but I didn't really have time to even learn to steer it. So I ended up landing in a small tree. I remember to hold my feet together tightly so that I wouldn't be straddling a branch. Mm. And ended up with my feet just, it slowed me down and delivered my feet to the ground at almost zero velocity. I was ending up, ended up standing, hmm. wow. which is lucky. I wouldn't recommend this as a procedure. For, <laughs> um, yeah. And then I uh, activated my, uh, the SOS on my satellite tracker. I knew I was okay, but I had no idea about the other pilots. So I thought it's best to raise an, raise an alarm. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we go back and pick it up from the other perspective, from Larry's perspective. Larry, can you walk us through, did you go kind of through the same thing? You looked at the forecast and thought, sure. oh, this should be a beautiful soaring day? So so several days before the, you know, Saturday, November 7th, there was a lot of chatter on the Internet how it was forecast to be a really good day. There was forecast to be lots of thermals to, as Paul said, about 6,000 feet in some places. And so, uh, anyway, I went out to the glider port on Saturday. I assembled my plane. We store them in trailers. And I pushed out uh, after Paul. And like I said, I got my toe, I think I was immediately after Paul, about 15 minutes after he took off. From the same Pawnee? Yeah, the same Pawnee. You know, the tow pilot's uh, saying, is that was so much fun, I'll do it again. Because he comes (laughs) back and picks up another person, another person, and, and so forth. Okay. So a number of gliders were launched that day. Uh, and so I launched after Paul, and I actually found a thermal quite quickly, and I climbed. And then I started heading off towards Mount Diablo. It's a very prominent landmark around here, and the clouds were looking very good in that direction. And I got over Mount Diablo, and uh, I did a, another climb to, you know, I guess, about 5,500 feet. And then I started going north just to see how far north I could get. There were some wispies, we call them, out to the north. 
And so it turned out there wasn't much left. So I came back to the Mount Diablo area. I climbed again. And as I was flying along, all of a sudden, as I described it, I had one visual frame of a, another glider on my left side. And it looked like he was banged slightly to the right relative to me. So one visual frame and a bang. And then uh, I immediately thought the, the mantra that we often practice of canopy, belt, butt, and then look at the D-ring. So that went through my mind. And I immediately pulled the two releases. One undoes the canopy and the other releases it from the front. So the canopy fluttered away. And it fluttered away. I distinctly remember thinking to myself, this is for real. Uh, and then, so canopy belt, I undid my seat belt. And the butt part was easy to get your butt out of the air- airplane because uh, apparently I was inverted. And so as soon as I undid my seat belt, I found myself flying through space on my back, looking up. And as I was looking at for the D-ring, I recognized a few bits from the cockpit floating around above me. So anyway, I pulled the D-ring, and uh, the parachute deployed immediately, as it's supposed to. It's an emergency parachute, so it deployed immediately. Mm. And, you know, it sounds like it took a lot of time, but I'm pretty sure that between the you know, the impact, the bang, and actually pulling my G-ring, I don't think it was more than six or seven seconds. So time slows down in those situations. Mm. And so anyway, the, the canopy deployed, and I used to take club parachutes to uh, our master rigger, Alan Silver, who would pack these things, and uh, you know, twice a year. And so I would, I would talk with him, and he would have me practice deploying the parachute a few times. And he told me about the, the control lines for turning. So, so I looked up, and there were the control lines. So I turned around to the north, and at first I thought I was going to try and guide it to the north. The parachute provides you about five miles per hour relative to the wind. And I thought I was going to go towards the north uh, where the ridge was, and there was a road on the ridge, a dirt road. But then I saw a fence with some equipment inside it, and I didn't want to be anywhere near that equipment. Mm. And so I turned around, and I started going in a direction downslope. And then I was going down, and I was trying to remember what they say to do, you know, to flex your knees, you know, have them stiff, and you see these uh, you know, pictures of people doing a tumble. So anyway, I was imagining myself going to be doing that. And then in the last couple seconds, I see the ground, and I'm thinking, man, that's coming up pretty fast. So I hit on my uh, feet and I slammed down on my butt. I'm laying there. I kind of try to stand up and I feel my back, a lot of pain in my back. So I roll over and I pull out my cell phone and I uh, dialed 911. And I told the 911 operator what had happened. We had had a collision midair. Both people had I had seen Paul's parachute below me. I didn't know it was Paul at the time. And so I told him there was a mid-air collision. And, and she, first thing she says is, where are you? And I kind of go, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a few miles south of Mount Diablo. <laughs> then uh, it turns out, you know, there are lots of apps on your phone. You know, one of the lessons learned is that like the iPhone compass app gives you a very accurate longitude and latitude. So if you're in the situation, 
that's where I would go to get my longitude and latitude. Anyway, I was there uh, kind of dumbfounded. And then two guys on horseback came up. They had seen seen us. Uh, and they came up and they took over the cell phone conversation. And I'm laying there in a few minutes. Paul walks up. And so that's the moment when we each knew who the other glider was. And then uh, I was injured. I had a compression fracture of my L2, L3 vertebrae. Pretty soon there's a helicopter sound and another helicopter turned out and landed. And so I was first medevaced by a Contra Costa police helicopter. And what they did is that they uh, sent down, it's kind of like a, a gurney on the end of a line. And so he slid me onto the gurney and then strapped me in. And then the helicopter lifted the two of us. He was still with me to a flat area near the road at the ridgetop where the, the main helicopter was. And they shipped me to a real gurney, which can be you know, wheeled into the helicopter. It's a rather large helicopter. So they wheeled me into the, the main helicopter. And then they closed that off, and then they took off, and we went to John Muir Trauma Center in Walnut Creek. You know, then grew up there doing things like taking blood pressure and temperature and all that stuff. So one of the other things I learned is that when you end up in a hospital, pretty soon the word gets out that you're in a hang glider accident, okay? Not one of these wonderful machines with 45-foot wingspans, so... So after a while, I, I made sure on my phone I had a picture of the glider so that I could explain to people. Hmm. I wasn't hang gliding. I was flying one of these glorious machines. <laughs> you know, what comes to my mind first is both of you had parachutes on, but I don't think parachutes are required for a glider operation, right? So can you talk us through why did you, is it a requirement of your soaring association or just good practice for glider pilots? It's good practice. Gliders are engineered so that either you wear a parachute or you need a uh, pad to be able to reach the rudder pedals, with a few exceptions, but most uh, European gliders are, are manufactured that way. I think in Europe, Europe you're required to use a parachute, but I'm not sure. But it's good practice because quite often they're in a competition with gliders. There'll be quite a few gliders on a single thermal, and it can get quite crowded, so there have been mid-airs before. There's, I think, a long history of mid-air collisions, actually. So it's, it's a wise thing to do. Yes, it's good practice, and it's near universal practice. Some instructional gliders are doing short flights. They don't wear parachutes, but typically any significant glider fight, you, you carry a parachute. And I can remember when, in my early days of gliding in, in England, there were posters on the wall saying collision is the biggest hazard in gliding. So it was... It, it, we used parachutes on day one when I was learning to play gliders. It's, you know, it makes sense when you think about it. You're going to have glider pilots all converging to wherever they hear or they see lift is occurring. So I can see how midair collision is a higher potential because you're all converging to the same proximity. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So did the gliders that you were flying these uh, ASW, the 20C and the 27, did they have radios in them? Oh, yeah. yeah they have radios, they had transponders, so, and they had this gadget called FLARM. And I wanted to ask you about the FLARM. Before we get to that, though, 
Are there typical radio calls that you make when you're gliding and soaring, you know, like you do when you're coming into a pattern or, or not so much because it's just too hard to describe? Can you talk us through, do you primarily use that radio for traffic pattern ops or is it more than that? Well, certainly it's primarily, you know, for, for traffic operations coming into the airport and communicating with the tow plane, but you also can switch frequencies. Uh, and speak to other glider pilots, but it's kind of hard to describe in great detail where you are quite often. Yeah. Most of the chatter between glider pilots is usually about where to find where the lift is and where you are, so you you can um, venture off into the somewhat less unknown it would otherwise be. But there are some areas, such as on the White Mountains, where there are radio procedures recommended to avoid mid-air collisions while soaring. But that's the exception rather than the rule. Is there a common frequency? So once you tow and you get out of the traffic pattern and you're, you're released, do you all go to a, a common sort of gliding frequency, air-to-air frequency? There are two glider frequencies in this country, 1233 and 1235. Most of us use one, two, three, three most of the time. Um, on the White Mountains, the procedure is actually specifies one, two, three, five. Okay. And were you both monitoring the frequency that day? I can't remember whether I'd switched from Byron frequency or not. I think I probably had. I think I had switched um, and gone to one, two, three, three. I think I'd switched, but I wasn't chattering on it. Yeah. yeah. So can we go back to the FLARM system? Would one of you please describe uh, that FLARM system? And I think in one of the airplanes, it wasn't operating because it was waiting on a software update. So can you talk a little bit about that FLARM system? Okay, a FLARM system works, it's not dissimilar to ADS-B out and in, in that it works by the glider continuously broadcasting its position. And also the system listens to other gliders broadcasting their position and does a calculation which takes account of um, rate of turn and how you're maneuvering as to how when a collision is at all likely, in which case it raises an alarm and you get an alarm on your screen and either an audio or visual indication of what direction the hazard's in. In other countries, I don't believe we have this in the US, but in other countries, they also publish obstacle databases and you can also use it for avoiding hmm. fixed obstacles such as... Uh, chairlifts on mountainsides and other strung cables. Yeah. It sends out information about the glider identification, where you are, what your speed is, uh, what your altitude is. So it sends that information out and also receives that information on the flying frequency from other gliders. And it does the math and it has a little display. And you can see other gliders in the region. And if there's a, you know indication that there's a threat It'll start, you know, flashing. Well, an approaching threat, the airplane symbol turns red in the region. And then when something's within, I think it's 15 seconds or so, it starts flashing and beeping and getting your attention. And if it's a Flarmaquick glider, it'll tell you, say, in in our collision, that plane would have been about 11 o'clock. Presumably, if I had seen a flash like that, I would have turned to the right. And Paul would have turned to the right also. Yeah, and so the reason that didn't help you guys on on the day of your midair is that one of the airplanes, it wasn't operating, and the other airplane didn't have the power flarm where you could 
incorporate other sources to identify hazards, right? It would have probably, if I looked, it would have shown a tiny circle on my um, air traffic display, which wasn't a very good one in that glider, which would have indicated there was an aircraft with mode C transponder nearby, but had no indication of what direction to look. Mm. But I didn't even notice that. They won't issue a collision warning for that because it's just too difficult to tell whether it's going to be a collision or not. Yeah. So my my plane uh, had a standard airworthiness certificate with ADS-B in it to it. You know, I, I would have to go through a, something that works with a standard airworthiness certificate on experimental gliders, and quite a few of the gliders are have experimental airworthiness certificates. You know, people can install them themselves and talk among themselves to figure out how to set the cells and this thing and that thing. So it's easier on an experimental glider than a standard airworthiness certificate glider. Uh, but I did have FLARM in my glider, but it required a, a software update. It had started putting out a black box saying, uh, you know, you need to update the software. So I tried several times to update the software with it. You download the data from the web and then you put it on a USB stick and stick the USB stick in there. And my experience is that it said it was updating, but then it wouldn't update. And so I figured, well, maybe I'll take care of this at the annual. So I just let it, I just let it lapse. But anyway, the farm wasn't working. Yeah. Boy, that's a shame because it seems like that Flarm, which both of you bought for just exactly this purpose, and to have it not operate because of just this technical glitch that you couldn't figure out is really frustrating. I know my, uh, my ADS-B on my, my Cessna, you know, I have to update the software, but it keeps on working, you know, if you didn't update the software. Anyway, you know, that's, that's in the past. So moving on to the concept of see and avoid, just looking at those small gliders with low profiles as you look straight onto them. And I'm trying to envision your collision. Both of you mentioned looking out uh, separate sides of your cockpit. Was it more of a head-on collision, or can you explain the, the uh, geometry of the collision? Subsequent analysis showed it was about a 45 degrees off head-on. And the view of a glider going straight at you from the front is almost invisible. Yeah. And it's, of course, when you're on a collision course, um, we weren't maneuvering, and that's one of the errors in the um, NTSB accident report. Because we weren't maneuvering, there was absolutely no motion at all. So even being looking in that direction, unless it was already very close, the likelihood of seeing it is very small. Yeah, so the, you know, the human eye is really built to detect movement. And so anything that's stationary can be hidden, number one. And, and two, to your point, just I was just looking at the profile of those gliders head-on. It would be really difficult to see a glider near uh, head-on profile, and you'd only have a couple of seconds if you happen to be looking in exactly that right spot. Yeah. And to your point, Paul, if you're on a, this is the challenge for glider or non-glider. If you are on a collision course with somebody, there's not going to be any movement in your canopy. They're going to be coming straight at you, and it will be the most difficult object to see. And, of course, that was the case with you guys. Yeah, and our closing speed is about, I think, about 140 knots or so. Yeah. So it, it doesn't give you much time. 
What an interesting and, and dramatic event to happen. And it's such a, a, a juxtaposition because the couple of times that I've been gliding, the of course, the beauty of it is you're soaring. There is no sound. It's so peaceful. And you're just you just feel like you're immersed in among the elements and the wind. And then all of a sudden you see this flash of this uh, airplane and wham, collision. And now you're now you're falling. And uh, just the, the transition of that whole experience must have been really indescribable. Yes, wow. it was at the time. It was uh, it was highly traumatic, but it didn't last long. And speaking for myself, I never ran out of options. So it took a few seconds between the collision and the parachute opening. And once the parachutes opened, then um, things are a whole lot calmer and are vastly less traumatic. Yeah. I agree. We were down to our last option, <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> yeah. Well, what would the two of you share as uh, lessons learned for other glider pilots and, and even for powered flight pilots about this situation in midairs? What's our takeaway? Well, I think the electronic collision avoidance systems are uh, obviously much better than seeing a void or have a lot of advantages over seeing a void. Mm-hmm. Paul, how about you? Any any lessons learned or takeaways? Um, yes, I would like to have um, more gliders equipped with FLAM and possibly even light aircraft as well and helicopters. In Europe, FLAM is installed widely installed on light aircraft and helicopters. I find it indispensable. That's the first thing I put in when I got my replacement glider. Mm. Before flying it, I put in ADS-B out and a FLAM. This certainly shows the limitations of see and avoid because I was thinking as you guys were talking, well, maybe it'd be a good practice if uh, everybody goes to a common glider frequency and you make calls periodically about I'm heading to Mount Diablo or I'm over Mount Diablo if there's a prominent landmark that people soar around. But I, th- I also had two thoughts of that. One, even in your case, I'm not sure that would have helped because of the geometry of your collision, that even if you were looking outside based on how small your airplanes are and that profile head-on, I'm still not sure you would have seen it unless you just happened to be looking at it. Yeah, and also, given on a good day, there would be so many gliders in the air, there'd be a huge amount of chatter. Actually, there's quite a bit of chatter on that frequency already on a good soaring day. Yeah. And it'd be hard because it's so free-flowing, right? You're all moving in different directions and coming at it. So it'd be really hard to explain where you are in a manner that would be helpful to other glider pilots. Yeah. Paul, uh, you know, mentioned the White Mountains, which are a north-south chain on uh, east, you know, east of the Sierra Nevada uh, by the Owens Valley. And that's a fabulous soaring area. But it's a very narrow soaring regime and region, so kind of like a freeway up and down. And so there are standard reporting places on the White Mountains that people use. And, you know, they say whether they're going north or south. And so that's an exception of an area because, you know, there are standard reporting areas. But in our case, we're somewhere heading south, somewhere south of Mount Diablo. And obviously, Paul is kind of heading northwest. Yeah, and it seems like another lesson learned would be both of you were equipped with parachutes, which weren't really required for the kind of soaring you were doing. And so 
to have additional safety equipment beyond what's required mm-hmm. was literally life-saving in this instance. Yeah. Yes. Great. Well, gentlemen, anything else to share with our audience about that day and your incident and what you've taken away from it? Well, I'm very grateful to my wife for coming out to fetch me and not forbidding me from flying again. <laughs> are both of are both of you back flying again? Yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> I uh, mostly did flight instruction this year, so I, I I have my own glider, which has you know uh, another glider, which has farm in it. But I only got to fly it twice. I ended up doing lots of flight instruction this this year. Well, gentlemen, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story with us. I'm glad you're both back flying and flying safely, and I'm thankful to both of you that you had parachutes on and they worked as advertised. Thanks again for sharing your story. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting us. Well, that's an interesting story, and it shows the limitations of the see and avoid concept, especially for airplanes that are as small as gliders with such a low profile head-on. And it's frustrating that the Flarm system was in place but wasn't operable because of a software update. And but for that, that Flarm system would probably have prevented this midair. And then thankfully, both of them went above the requirements, had parachutes on, and it saved their lives that day. So we're thankful they survived and thankful they came on and shared their story with us. Thanks for joining us on this edition of There I Was, alongside our producer, David O'Leary. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.